Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. And I got to tell you, it's a bit literal this week. We have the winning crew chief from the Verizon 200 at the Brickyard, Travis Peterson. He is our guest this week from Front Row Motorsports. He's a rookie crew chief, but he has been in the sport for many, many years, won many races, championships, but he's yet to do so as a crew chief in the Cup Series, and he did it this past weekend at Indianapolis. What a guy, what a performance, and I really, really appreciate him carving out some time out of his busy schedule to join me, us, here at this uh, measly little pod. So looking forward for you guys to hear that chat. We're also going to chat a little bit about that race and the dominant performance from his driver. Michael McDowell winning at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Road Course. And we got another one coming up next at Watkins Glen in the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York. Before we do any of that, it is episode 197. We are creeping ever so closer to the landmark episode 200. So let's pay homage to the number 97 with Papa Siegel in this week's Wayback segment. What do you have for us? Thank you, Duve, and hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 197. Wow, we're really closing in on 200. I wonder what our host has in store for us. I'd tell you if I knew, really. Last time around, we highlighted the elder of the two racing Bush brothers, Kurt. Although I did spend even more time on my honorable mention nod to Parnelli Jones. Probably should have swapped the order on those two. Today... We focus our way back lens on a pioneering member of the famed Alabama gang, Red Farmer. Nobody's exactly sure how many races Farmer won. Estimates range from between 700 to 900, all mostly in the late 1950s and 60s on short tracks in South Florida, then Alabama. Farmer cut his teeth in my hometown along with Bobby and Donnie Allison, before they moved north to Alabama, since the racing purses were better there. Those three formed the core of the Alabama gang. Farmer was a four-time NASCAR champion. He won the NASCAR late model sportsman division three consecutive years, from 1969 to 71, and the modified division, which he captured in 1956. Farmer also made 36 Cup Series starts. 21 of those came, you guessed it, in the 97 car. In addition to his considerable triumphs, Farmer has been no stranger to tragedy. Owing to his close relationship with the Allisons, he was like a member of the family to the Allison boys. Farmer served as Davy Allison's crew chief for the Bush Series and he was in the helicopter with Davey on that fateful day in July 1993 when they crashed at Talladega. Farmer was critically injured but survived. As you know, Davey Allison did not. 
Red Farmer was named one of NASCAR's 50 greatest drivers in 1988 and was the first person elected to the NASCAR Hall of Fame under the Pioneer ballot in 2021, which recognizes individuals who began their careers in motorsports more than 60 years ago. At the ripe old age of 90, Red is still getting it done. As late as December 2022, he was still racing at the third of a mile Talladega short track. That a boy. That's all for this week. Back to you, Duve. Thank you, Dad, as always. Always learn something on the way back segment. I tell you, we do not go dumb on this show. At least when my dad's talking because he he's smart. You know, I just babble. Anyway, speaking of babbling, let's get to it. Start this episode off as we always do, and you already know, people, that is with a good old-fashioned... <laughs> and throw it straight over to my interview with Travis Peterson, crew chief of the 34 at Front Row Motorsports, winner in the NASCAR Cup Series as a rookie crew chief. That is a heck of an accomplishment. Had a bit of an abbreviated chat with him because, as you could imagine, coming off of a victory, heading into another road course, and gearing up for what will be the playoffs. And also, his wife is due with the baby in about a month. He has got a whole heck of a lot going on right now in the Peterson household and in Travis's world. But nonetheless, sat down with me for about 15 minutes or so, and we got into anything and everything surrounding this Indy road course win. Cannot wait for you guys to hear it. So here it is, Travis Peterson, right where he ended Sunday night on Victory Lane. Pleasure to welcome on to the show this week, the winner of the Verizon 200 at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And he's still smiling, and I have no reason to think that that smile will be wiped off his face anytime soon. Travis Peterson, crew chief of the 34. No disrespect to your uh, wonderful, beautiful wife, but was that the best kiss you've ever had on Sunday? <laughs> no, absolutely. I cannot say on anything recorded that uh, it's not better than kissing my wife, but Good it's man. Pretty, pretty right there with it. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Um, what have the last couple of days been like for you as a winner in the Cup Series as a crew chief? And, oh, by the way, you got Watkins Glen coming up where you guys legitimately could do it again. Yeah, I mean, it's really special. It, it's been really rewarding over the last day, even this morning, just the celebrations, the the calls, the texts, catching up on all that, rewatching a little bit of the coverage. Um, it, it's really been able to sink in, and it's it's super special. It's amazing. We're all soaking it up and loving every minute. So it has sunk in officially because I know it takes a while for people when they win for the first time in Cup. Yeah, I think in the moment, you know, you're, you're doing everything, you're getting run around. I mean, I'm not going to lie, it was the first time, obviously, I was a crew chief winning and I had to run around, do all kinds of stuff, do interviews here, and I was kind of getting pulled in all directions. And yeah. I was just like, when can I go to the car, make sure tech's good, make sure my guys are happy. And, uh, you know, obviously it all went out, went it great. And uh, it, it's cool to kind of let it, let it soak in slowly. How much does the way that you guys did it by – Unloading quick, qualifying well, racing well, winning a stage, perfect pit stops, no mistakes. How much does that factor into the amount of satisfaction that you personally have gotten from this win, Travis? Yeah, I mean, to not just be what people would consider a fluke win it definitely helps. Um, you know, your goal is to do weekends like this, and they don't happen all the time. So when they do, they're really special. And I know we all felt that on Sunday morning because we knew the car was good, and uh, we had that extra nervousness that – quiet everybody just focused that you know we know we have the car beat and we need to go do it we can't just throw hail mary 
Um, you know, as a crew chief, I think throwing Hail Marys and strategy wins are cool too. Um, cause that feels like you did it. Um, but yeah. definitely to do it as a team and be that fast the whole weekend. That's, that's what you want. That's a, that's the statement you make that isn't, Oh, they just want a speedway or, Oh, they just lucked into a rain win or a strategy of some kind. It was, you no, know, they were the best car all weekend and they did it. Not don't need to tell you, but I don't think this should come as a surprise, right? You guys were on track, no pun intended to point your way in as a, a smaller underfunded team amongst the big dogs. And your guys were really good on points. So going into this race, and I know you just told us on Sirius that you guys looked at this race as more than an opportunity. You looked at this as a potential win, being one of Michael's best racetracks. When you unloaded off the truck, how much of a sigh of relief was it for you to know that you did have the speed that what matched up on the Sim and what Michael had in his brain too? Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to go into weekend confident and feel like, all right, we have a good idea on the setup. We got good notes. Um, you know, my driver's good at this track. Um, but that's all thoughts. And there's plenty of weekends I've gone into where I, oh, I think we got the best thing that we're going to take. And then you go there and you're 20th and you're scratching your head. And so I, I go into every weekend with like a confident nervousness, you know, I try to put the best thing you can on the track every single time, but you never know until you really unload what it's going to be like. And you know, after watching the first group, uh, our first lap wasn't exactly top of the board, but it was a lot faster than a lot of other guys' first laps. And I was like, oh, boy, I hope he keeps this up. And you know, <laughs> then we swapped the top of the board with our teammate there for a minute. He was up there, and then we were up there. And yeah, it was just a really special, exciting time right there to see us and our teammates be that fast. Michael was saying after practice leading into the race, he was really nervous, could barely sleep at night because he knew that you guys had such a fast car. He just didn't want to be the one that messed it up. What were your nerves like uh, the night before the race? Uh, you know, the night before wasn't as bad because in my boat, it was, you know, go back and look at everything, see if see how it was, talk to Michael about his feedback. Do we make some tweaks based on practice? And when I rewatched practice and I just saw how tidy Michael was and it's still able to be the fastest car, you know, he wasn't overdriving. He wasn't doing anything like that. I was like, it was more of a mindset, don't screw it up. And then on Sunday morning, it became the nerves of, okay, we have the best car, we have to execute, and how do we make sure we don't make any mistakes? You've worked for larger organizations in different capacities in the past. RFK, when it was Roush Fenway, Junior Motorsports, Hendrick. I mean, the, the list goes on, right? How does FRM compare to those organizations in terms of manpower, resources, relationships with OEMs? I mean, we hear about Front Row being a smaller, underfunded team, right? And I know the next gen has kind of lessen that gap a little bit but now you have lived kind of both sides of the spectrum here so give us the the 411 from your perspective how small is frm really comparatively to those bigger teams yeah i mean it, there's no shortcoating it is a small deal and we have less resource and less people than everywhere i've ever been i mean the closest thing is probably junior motorsports which does a lot with a little staff um i think they've grown over the years as they've done well um but when we first got there it was right when Hendrick kind of started to invest in it and make it a, a part of their organization as well almost um and so it's still relatively small um then obviously being at the Hendrick organization that's one of the biggest ones with the most funding and most everything so um I've kind of slowly trickled down to less and less um as I took an opportunity at each place and um you know it, it is really tough it's it's not a <laughs> knowing what is out there and what you're racing and the resources and the things they look at and then struggling to try to do that with less people and less money and everything else that holds you back from buying new parts and pieces and reusing stuff and 
um, you know, it's a struggle, but it also kind of makes us have that underdog mentality and that grind and uh, the chip on your shoulder that comes from beating the big guys that you think are doing it with more stuff than you. So I think everybody here takes a little bit of pride in there, that, and it uh, kind of gives us a little bit extra fire. Do you think that you kind of thrive off that mindset, being the underdog, overlook, chip on your shoulder type of thing? I mean, I, I think it's good when it works well. Um, but, you know, this is one win in a long season. And sure. some days you wish if I had a little bit more, maybe I could do this more. Um, yeah. <laughs> obviously, there's no right or wrong way to do it. And the next gen car has given us a great opportunity to be able to just try to put everything together better and not get beat by those budgets entirely. Um, but, you know, it's it's a yin and yang. There, there's cool things and it's more rewarding, but you definitely don't want to always have to struggle that hard. So you're no stranger to winning, personally. I mean, you have won races, you've won championships, whether it's on the cup level, Xfinity level, K&M Pro Series level. So you know what it takes, you know what it's like. How did this win specifically compare to those other ones, whether it was a race or a championship or anything in between? I mean, every moment has been special because it's been special for different reasons as you climb the ladder. Um, but... I mean, this was the ultimate goal uh, to become a crew chief and to be able to compete for wins and championships. And, you know, I'm not I'm just like Michael said, I'm not going to say we're a championship threat at the moment, but we're certainly going to give it all we got. And we did win a race. So um, obviously, it's probably the most special one as you climb the ladder and you're in charge of parts of the car or you're in charge of the setup or whatever. For my personal history, it's been the more you can control, the more rewarding each win feels. Um, and now being the crew chief, basically everything outside of holding the steering wheel is in my control. And, um, you know, it's the most rewarding because you've had the most control over everything and you feel like you really, really did it. Again, going back to these different companies and organizations you've worked with in the past, the drivers, Hall of Fame talents, Hall of Fame resumes, Dale Jr., Ryan Newman, Matt Kenseth, the list goes on and on and on. Where does Michael stack up in that list for you? you, you obviously have worked really close with all of them, but potentially none closer than you are with Michael right now as the crew chief. Where does he stack up? Yeah, you know, I mean, on a different tier of conversations, like some guys you're, it's really cool to work with, right? Uh, Jeff Gordon had to fill in for Dale when he was knocked out and I was on the team. And it's just cool to work with a guy who's a Hall of Famer and one of the greatest sport ever has. So there's cool factors of working with that. You work alongside a guy like Jimmy Johnson, who's also one of the best there ever was, and won seven championships, and you see his work ethic. Um, and then there's Michael McDowell, who took a risk on me and made my career, and we've worked really, really well together, and now we've won together. Um, and so everybody has been a different guy to work with, a special guy to work with for different reasons, and I've learned something from everybody. Um, you know, when Kenzo was filling in, another great veteran, well-respected guy who taught me a lot, um, and we kind of clicked in some things that helped me learn about the car. Um, and so everybody has been cool to work with and I've learned a lot with, um, but I think what's really impressed me the most about Michael is how much harder he has probably worked than anybody else I've ever seen to be where he's at and to try to be good. Um, and how much effort he still has to put in all the time to help put the pieces together on his team and compete every weekend. Um, so his drive and work ethic has probably been second to none. You mentioned he kind of took a chance on you, and you guys are obviously having a lot of success this year. Leads me to my next question about this uh, infamous lunch that I read about. I think Dustin Long's story was the first one that I read it in at NBC Sports. Uh, as the story goes, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys were at lunch. You were just chit-chatting. You were trying to kind of – it was like a job interview almost, I guess. And allegedly or apparently, he kind of fired you up with a couple questions or comments. 
My question to you is, what the hell did he say to you to get you so fired up that you got the job? I don't know that it was fired up, and I, and I think you know he, he made that comment, and I think he was trying to get a response out of me uh, based on watching his post interview there. But um, I don't know. I think I've just always, to my own fault at times, been a little bit too honest and open with my opinion. And uh, when he was talking about doing his due diligence, and I, I think I asked him at one point, I'm like, what other guys are you talking to? Or are you talking to other guys? Or, you know, how much time do I have to work through all this? And, uh, you know, he said he was, and he was talking to some other veteran guys who'd done this or that. And, um, uh, yeah, I just, and I, I pretty much told him along the lines of, why not take a risk on a guy that has an unknown ceiling rather than hire a guy that you know has been an average guy for a long time, right? Because it's not like Michael's out there trying to convince Chad Canals to come for a chief for him. Um, so I said, you know, you may find the next Chad Canals if you take a risk on a guy. And I'm not certainly saying I'm that guy. I was just making a point of, hey, we don't know what I could do until I'm that guy. And I think because Michael also has felt that way throughout his career, like, hey, I believe in me. And I think I can do it given the right opportunity. So why not take a risk on me? And Michael's thought that about his own driver um, career. So I think that kind of resonated with him. And it sounds like it was the right response he was looking for. You got pretty animated after the race. You were uh, jumping, hugging everybody, everything you saw on the pit box. You got off the wall. You're hugging everybody outside the pit box. Michael's doing the burnout. I think it was you that was hammering the hood. Uh, is that just you? Like in a nutshell, do you let your emotions fly like that? Or was that out of character? I'm, I'm pretty boring when it comes to emotion. And, uh, we were talking about my lovely wife earlier and she would definitely say that she's called me vanilla before. And, um, <laughs> so, uh, it is a little bit out of character, but it's not in this capacity. I've kind of always really enjoyed celebrating the wins because you never know when it's going to happen and they're so hard and it's such a big deal that when that emotion fills you up, there's nothing better than going to celebrate with all the guys that you've worked really hard with. Um, so I've always kind of been a fly off the box, go hug everybody, high fives, let's go celebrate because yeah. to some extent everybody's different in the way they handle things, but it bothers me when guys who've won too many times is kind of, oh yeah, cool, we won, that's what we were supposed to do. I'm like, no, this is hard, this is a big deal, you should celebrate, celebrate. but that's just me and my personality. Yeah, I hear you. I'm, I'm the same way when it comes to other stuff. Um, so after the race on NBC, Kim Kuhn almost made you cry. I don't want to make you cry. But I, I do want to know, I mean, it's your first win as a crew chief at Indianapolis. Your dad was in the sport. You're kind of following his footsteps. I get all that. Like, this obviously means so much to you, but I want to hear it from you. Why did this win specifically mean so much to you, and why were you kind of overcome with emotion there? I mean, obviously, in the moment, you're you're welled up with that emotion and the, the stress and the excitement, and then it all starts to kind of hit you that it's real, and they're asking you questions about your family, and then you start thinking about your family and in my parents, uh, specifically moving our family from Wisconsin to North Carolina to take this risk for my dad to do this sport. Um, you know, I know they feel a huge sense of pride that I'm still doing it and that we're having success because they view that as a success of the choice they made with our lives as a family. Um, and anytime you get to spend any moments with your family and celebrate things, obviously, unfortunately, my wife being pregnant doesn't go to a lot of the races right now, but Michael got his family there and those things are special and we'll celebrate with the people who care the most about you about major career milestones. And, you know, just the fact that it's what I've wanted to do ever since I was in high school and I decided I wanted to try to be a crew chief and win races. And now we made it, I guess I got to set the bar a little higher and make sure I go for more and more championships and things like that. When's your wife do? Uh, about a month from now. 
All right. Well, that'll be a busy time for you. Playoff time yeah. and having a new kid into the world. First um, round with a baby. I'm stress testing myself as hard as I can right now. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, last thing, because I know i got to let you run. Um, obviously, the playoffs are coming up, right? You're locked in. You, you were probably going to be in anyway, but now you're locked in. I don't need to tell you that road course that's looming in the second round. How much of your mind is thinking if we can just get past the round of 16, our prospects shape up pretty good for the second one? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our goal is to build on the momentum we've had lately and be just strong enough in the first round to, to be a contender. I mean, we've been close to top 10 cars a lot in the last month or so. Um, and, you know, if you just look at the first round, like I'm really excited to go back to Bristol. I was on team one that last year and Michael's had some really good runs at Darlington. So we think, all right, cool. Yeah, let's, you know, just be good and get our way through there because exactly what you just said, the second round is right at the wheelhouse we're looking at right now of why we want to get to these last three because there's a speedway and a road course in there. So, man, it'd be something if we uh, not only play spoiler to get in, but then make it through the first round, make it to the third round. That'd be, that'd be an awesome yeah, story. I hope we do it. Last, last thing. Watkins Glen, I mentioned, you guys got a legit chance of going back to back, and you said that this is Michael's favorite road course. Coming off a win, how realistic do you think you can do it again? Yeah, you know, there's guys who are – going to be probably a little more desperate for that win now because we kind of shook up the playoffs there so it's it's not going to be easy and the guy who was right behind us last week he runs great here too so um you're gonna you're gonna be racing chase you're gonna be racing daniel you're gonna be racing martin truex these guys that are always good at the Glen. um but certainly michael loves this track and he circles this one as his favorite and he's made that clear a couple times this year so um the hope is that we can take all the things we've learned to make our package better every time and, and go be that guy in the storylines again and um, I just don't know if, uh, you know, we'll just, we'll just have to see what everybody else shows up with. It's the same kind of confidence that we had going into this weekend. We think it's going to be a good opportunity, but we won't know until you unload and see how practice goes. Well, you are the guy this weekend, my friend. Appreciate the time this week. Again, I know it's a busy one with all the different interviews and appearances and setting up for the Glen, but appreciate you carving out some time for us here this week. Congratulations and hope to talk to you again soon because we barely scratched the surface. You are an interesting man, my friend, so we'll have to have you back. <laughs> Well, thanks. Hopefully keep giving you reasons to uh, call me in. Absolutely. And we are back. Thank you so much to Travis for the time. And thanks to Mac McLeod as well for helping coordinate that conversation. Again, busy, busy week for Mac, Jeff Dennison, everybody over at Front Row, including Travis and Michael, obviously. And uh, really happy and appreciative that they were able to squeeze me in for a quick little chat. So thank you, fellas. Thank you, Mac. Thank you, Travis. Congratulations, all you guys, on a wonderful win and a wonderful story. It was really, really cool to see. So let's dive a little bit more into that cool feel-good story, and that was Michael McDowell putting an absolute whooping, stomping, shellacking, dominating performance on the field in the Verizon 200 at the Brickyard. Qualified up front, won stage one, Gained playoff points, gained stage points. He was going to be in a good spot whether or not he won the race just because of all the points that he was gaining throughout the day. But it became more and more evident and became clearer that he was going to be the car to beat. You had to go through the 34 if you wanted to win that race, and that's what played out. The one car that was pretty stout in terms of challenging Michael was Daniel Suarez, the 99. But as we know, you guys have probably seen by now that pit stop issue that kind of hindered them on what was the final pit stop with the air hose kind of getting stuck underneath the left front tire. That was kind of the nail in the coffin for them. I don't know if it was anybody's fault specifically. I mean, Travis Mack joined us on SiriusXM this week and basically said it was a lot of people's fault. 
Daniel could have been better getting in the box. I could have been better counting him in. The tire changer could have been a little bit better on the exchange. The Jackman could have looked to make sure. Basically, it's a team sport, and that's what Suarez said after the race as well. We win as a team. We lose as a team. But bottom line is Michael McDowell and the 34 team, they won as a team. And boy, it was oh so gut-wrenchingly, painstakingly close for the guy that finished right behind him, William Clyde Elliott. Oh, man. Chase Nation, I feel for you. Been there many times in my day as a fan. Just one spot short. Now, I, I can't say that a win would have gotten my driver back in the day into the playoffs. I was just sad because he finished second again. But this one, obviously, this does nothing for Chase. A confidence booster? Sure, maybe. But if you heard Chase after the race, he was very woe as me as he kind of usually is. Not not bagging on him, just kind of a fact of, look, I was good. I just wasn't good enough because Michael was great and his car was great. But this is good for Chase Elliott, I will say, because this is when you want to be getting hot. Now, getting hot doesn't do anything for him unless they win a race. They got two more chances to do so at Watkins Glen next week where, oh, by the way, he has won before, not once but twice, I believe, uh, and Daytona. And he's obviously won on super speedways before at Atlanta and Talladega. So a win is not out of the question for Chase Elliott. I've said for a few weeks that it's not going to happen. I'm sticking to those guns because I'd like my steak dinner from Daniel Trotta. Um, but I will say he's getting hot on the road courses at the right time. And if last week's performance was any indication of what we may see from the nine team, whether it's pit stops, driver, crew chief, strategy, et cetera, et cetera, they may be one of, if not the car to beat. And I, I know that we'll find that out when they unload off the truck for a quick practice session. We'll see where they qualify because we know track position is very important. But P2 for Chase Elliott doesn't do much for him on the stat sheet. It may do a lot for him and them, though, in the confidence department. So keep your eye on Chase, but keep your eye on McDowell, too. We talked with Travis right there at the end of our chat. He thinks that they got a legit shot. I mean, we'll see how things go, but given that they dominated Indy, they've run well on other road courses this season and in the next-gen era, and they're going to one that is Michael's favorite. Buckle up, Buttercup. You might be seeing a back-to-back -back win for Michael McDowell after back-to-back -back wins for Chris Buescher. A lot of Bs, back-to-backs. Oh, my God. Holy bejesus. NASCAR right now is crazy. And, oh, by the way, the bubble battle, a couple other Bs, that is going wild and crazy right now, too, because you got Bubba Wallace, who was plus 58 heading into the race, and he lost ground because not only did he not gain stage points, but the fact that McDowell wins bumps everything down and back a little bit. Ty Gibbs went into the race above the cut line. He exits below the cut line. Daniel Suarez, he is not sitting too pretty, but he's not sitting bad either. Right? There are so many different storylines on the bubble right now besides the 54-99 and, of course, the 9, Chase Elliott that we talked about, and the 23 of Bubba Wallace. Where was A.J. Allmendinger on Sunday? I'll tell you where. Mid-pack and towards the back. And that's where his confidence was too. I love AJ to death. I love his wife, Tara. They're expecting their baby any day. But I think AJ would probably be the first to tell you, they ran like some doo-doo on Sunday. And I think it kind of stemmed from Saturday. Ran the Xfinity race. He finished well. I think it was in the top five, maybe runner-up. But he didn't win. And he was even kind of down in the dumps after that one. AJ is a very temperamental driver that is driven, no pun intended, by confidence. From the outside looking in, he doesn't have much right now, which is not what you want heading into a racetrack where, again, he has won before. But 
after we just raced on a track that he had won at before the Indy Road Course back in 2021. Nothing there. Absolutely nothing. Now he's below Alex Bowman and Chase Elliott in the point standing, so he obviously has to win a race for sure. And can't go too much further without noting Alex Bowman, too. It's kind of funny because I haven't talked about him yet. Maybe forgot him. That's kind of what it feels like right now. Alex Bowman, the forgotten Hendrick driver? Question mark? I don't know. You tell me, but we know he had that injury that kind of kept him out of the car for a handful of weeks. But this summer stretch has been absolutely dismal for the 48. Besides when he was missing those races, he had not scored a top 10 finish since Richmond. Not in the summer, in the spring. That is an absurd amount of time to go without a top 10 finish in the Cup Series. And Alex Bowman was doing that in one of, if not the best cars for the best teams. So a really solid top five run for him. That was just what the doctor ordered. But again, the doctor needs to order a bit more because he needs to win to make his way into the playoffs, just like his teammate Chase Elliott does. A couple more things to hit on when it comes to Indy. The road course ringers. You had SVG leading the way. He finished in inside the top 10, just barely in 10th place, and also made his oval debut a couple nights before at IRP for Nice Motorsports, finished inside the top 20. Good performance for him there. The other ringers kind of left a little bit to be desired, but I don't blame them considering that there was little to no practice time. I mean, Brody Kostecki, I know he raced stock cars stateside for five, seven, maybe eight, nine, ten years, whatever it was in K&N, uh, but he didn't even get a test. Kamui Kobayashi got a test. SVG got a test. Brody didn't get a test. I know he's been doing sim work for RCR, but I'm curious as to why he didn't get one. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. He did all right for not having any real past experience. I think Kamui, you can say the same for him. He said he had a good time. He'd like to come back and try his hand at NASCAR again. Took a little bit of time for him to get acclimated. Mike Rockefeller, he did all right. Again, the, the equipment that he was in was not great and had a self-inflicted wound when he was speeding on pit road. Jensen Button, he was just okay. Again, in the equipment specifically, not going to light the world on fire. But I really just enjoyed seeing all the international ringers and flair. And also, don't forget Andy Lally, former guest on this show just a handful of weeks ago, who uh, also was driving a Rick Ware racing car, being teammates with Jensen Button. So even though SVG, Kamui, Brody, Rockefeller, and oh, by the way, Daniel Suarez finished inside the top five, even though none of the international guys and ringers won the race or set the world on fire, the fact that they were there was awesome to me. And I know it's not everybody's cup of tea, but for this host, it was my cup of tea. I really enjoyed it. So back off and get off my lawn. Speaking of things I enjoyed, the time of that race. Chef's kiss. Oh, my God. Give me some more of that. Two hours, nine minutes, 58 seconds unofficially at the time of the race, I think. I'll take more of that, please. And I will say this. You know, a lot of people, they don't want the races to be that short because... They feel like they're shorted. They want more of the product that they're paying to see, whether it's in person or investing their time in watching on TV. I can understand that completely, totally. But I'll take a two-hour, 10-minute race, especially in the dog days of summer, especially when there's not a whole lot of beaten, banging, bumper-to-bumper action going on, which was not the case on Sunday. Don't get me wrong. Good race. I voted yes. I think on Jeff Gluck's poll, I think it was legitimately, honestly, truthfully, a good race. Wasn't a barn burner. Wasn't the greatest road course race I've ever seen, 
but I think it had a lot of action. The storylines were compelling. The bubble battle was phenomenal. I enjoyed those two hours and 10 minutes of my Sunday. Now, if you didn't, I can understand and respect why you did not. But riddle me this. If you want the races to be longer, why? Just tell me why. And we've had this conversation on Sirius a bunch this week too. But is it because you want to see more action? Okay, well, if you made it longer, then it was just going to be cars going around just like they were for a longer period of time. What's the difference? You, you want stages to be back so you can bunch the field up and have restarts. Okay, I can see your point. Well, you're going to add 20, 30, 45 minutes at least because stage cautions bunch the field up and you got to take commercial breaks and pit the lap cars, pit the lap down cars, then do this, that, and the other, yada, yada, yada. And I know laps at Indy are not as long as Road America, but they're still pretty damn long. And you know full well that if you restart this field, even with the new restart zone, which worked swimmingly, by the way, that they are going to get rough and tumble. They're going to get rowdy, and they are going to wreck again. And there's going to be more restarts, and there's going to be bent fenders, hurt feelings, rear clips, front clips, cautions, flat tires, wall repairs, et cetera, et cetera. You know what that translates to? More time. And you know what? I don't need it. I just don't need it. I don't want every race that I watch to be two hours and 10 minutes. Now, I personally would not mind that, to be honest, but I understand that's not what NASCAR is. NASCAR is not Formula One. NASCAR is not IndyCar. NASCAR is not IMSA. It is NASCAR, and that is organic, different from all those other racing series that I named. And sometimes you get a two-hour, 10-minute race. Sometimes you'll get a four-and-a-half-hour race. Sometimes you'll get a two-and-a-half-hour race, two hours, 45 minutes, three-and-a-half hours, three hours. It doesn't matter. It just kind of fluctuates week to week. But I don't see anything bad about what we saw on Sunday being a shorter race because I was thoroughly compelled throughout the event. The storylines kept me hooked. The winner was a good story. And the racing, again, it wasn't bad. So who cares how long the race was? Did you want more? Did you leave that race wanting more? If you did, let me know at Davy Center on Twitter. And you can even call us on TMD, Series XMs, On Track, Train Paint, Speedway, Late Shift, whatever you want this week. Just call us and give us your thoughts. But I did not leave that race wanting more. I left that race thinking, oh, wow, I'm not used to having three, four, five hours left on my Sunday night to do whatever I want. And what I did was, you know, work on stuff for the week as it pertains to the show and the race, et cetera, et cetera. That's not the point. The point is the race being short is not a bad thing. Now, if it happens every week, that is something we need to discuss. And I don't think that's good for business personally, but this was a one-time thing. This is not the norm people. So just pipe down and back off. And, of course, we're headed to the Glen for another road course this weekend. No stage break still. So, remember, the race may fly by. We'll see if it happens for the second week in a row. That would be uh, awfully fun to deal with all the <laughs> fan base on series this week, wouldn't it? Uh, I love you, people. Just kidding. Um, but I'm interested to see what Chase can do. I'm interested to see what McDowell can do for an encore. What about Suarez? What about Ty Gibbs? All these guys that need to win, what are they going to do? Are they going to play different strategy? What about the guys that need to win that are going to have a legit shot to do it, that are going to qualify up front, race up front, be able to pass cars under green flag conditions, and how are the restarts, or maybe lack thereof, 
going to impact what we see on Sunday? I do not know the answers to those questions, but I am very happy and eager to find out, and we will do so together this weekend on the NBC Family Networks. And that will wrap things up for this uh, bit shorter abbreviated episode of Victory Lane 2.0, 197 in the books, 198, 199, and 200 on deck for you in the next few weeks. Appreciate your time here today. And if you like what you heard, please do me a favor. You can leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to the podcast. You can do so on Apple, Google, SoundCloud, the green app as well. I think you know what I'm talking about. And uh, drop me a line if you like what you heard or if you have an issue, I will try to rectify that for you. Or if you have a guest that you would like to hear on the show, I try to spread the wealth and hit new people. You know, there's, there's a bunch of guests that I have had on before that are now doing bigger and better things. I want to maybe let that breathe for a bit, come back to that later in the year or maybe next year. Um, you know, your Haley Deegans, your Sam Mayers, Sammy Smith, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But there's, there's a lot out there that I have not talked to. And that's why I want to hit on this show. Travis Peterson was on my list. He was one of them. Figured I'd strike while the iron is hot. And, uh, I think we did that just well this week. So again, thank you to him. Thank you to Mac McLeod. Thank you to everybody at front row. And congratulations again on that win. Most importantly, party people, thanks to you for tuning in this week and every single week. I hope you enjoy the racing action this weekend at the Glen. And we will catch you on the flip side next week to talk about that and preview the regular season finale at Daytona. Talk to you then, party people. Be good.